welcome to this new Retina Radio miniseries, Matching Patients to Therapy and Wet AMD. My name is John Kitchens, and I'm joined today by two panelists. The first is Dr. Moo Autumn, who is in practice at Colorado Retina Associates. Dr. Autumn, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's an honor to be here. And our other guest is Dr. Alexandra Rachaskaya, who practices at the Cole Eye Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Alexandra. Thank you, John. Excited for this discussion today. In this series, we will profile various real-world patient cases and explore which therapy option these patients are best suited for. We'll first hear about the details of each case, and then after the break, we'll reveal which therapy our panelists have selected for their patients. Let's kick things off with you, Moo. Go ahead and get into your case. Yes, John. Um, we had a patient present to us, a uh, 65-year-old female uh, with bilateral neovascular AMD. Um, she's a long-standing smoker, and uh, she came to us in Denver in our central office, driving about two and a half hours uh, from her home in the mountains, uh, past the western slopes. And uh, her case was was quite pronounced in that she had large broad PEDs, extensive leakage with uh, submacular fluid and macular edema in both eyes, visual acuities of 2080 in the left eye and 2070 in the right eye. Um, you know, we talked about treatment options and, and relayed to her that given the large degree of exudation, um, the treatment burden for her could be quite high. And, and with her situation of living so far away, um, this was definitely uh, worrisome for her in her mind. So, Moo, a, really a lot of very interesting aspects to your case. First, we have bilateral disease. Uh, the second, we have this travel issue for the patient. And then finally, we have this PED component with really extensive exudation in both eyes. Alexander, what do you think about Moo's patient? Uh, I think the description of Moose case does represent particular challenges, right? Uh, he also mentioned that this patient is young. She's 65. So what discussion do you have with this patient when you first meet them? They have bilateral disease. And they, the first question they're going to ask you when you bring up injections, well, am I going to get these injections for the rest of my life? You know, this is a very common question that we hear from the patients. So uh, you kind of have to be ready to answer that. And um, she has a long commute, probably challenging with bilateral uh, disease. The question is, is she gonna come on her own? Is somebody gonna bring her? You know, you, we treat the, you know, we treat the eyes, we treat the, based on our imaging modalities, but we ultimately treat the patient and we have to keep all of that in mind. I think it's also interesting, the question you brought up of uh, PEDs and uh, what to do with them. Uh, I totally agree with Moo in terms of getting additional imaging. Uh, it sounds like there was not only OCT, but fluorescein done and maybe even ICG, just to confirm that you know what you're dealing with in this um, kind of cases that don't quite match extremely classic um, uh, vascular AMD presentation. Yeah, so there are really a lot of very interesting aspects to Moo's case that create some definite challenges, not just medical, but also social. Now, Alexandra, let's jump into your case real quick. Tell us about your patient. So my patient is a patient probably both of you have seen maybe in the last couple of weeks. Uh, this is a very pleasant 81-year-old uh, female who comes in from 
I'm a general ophthalmologist. Uh, she was seen there a um, couple of weeks ago and there was some concern that was definitely warranted. She comes in, uh, the right eye is the affected eye. Her vision is 2060 on OCT. She has drusen, some extrafoveal geographic atrophy, but the attention is really drawn to her intraretinal and subretinal fluid. In the left eye, she is 2030 asymptomatic, no fluid seen on uh, OCT, and she has some drusen and some, once again, extrafoveal GA. You know, the when we see a patient like that, there is whole discussion, do you need to get anything other than OCT for imaging? Do you get FA? Do you get OCTA on this patient? I think if, you know, a lot of times I see them in satellite offices and I don't have access uh, to these additional modalities. And if it's a classic presentation, I'd rather treat them that visit than to wait uh, to, to get treatment. And, um, you know, but if there's question, you know, CTA utilization and the other eye, maybe you can catch some early uh, CNB that is not um, exudative yet. And so this patient was started on uh, bevacizumab and did really well in terms of drying of fluid and improvement in vision. Uh, but every time we tried to extend her past four weeks, she was kind of getting stuck. You know, we couldn't get past four weeks. And I think we'll talk a little bit more of what we can do for a patient like that. So Moo Alexandra presents a great case of a patient that just can't get extended out. You know, we have this very interesting question of what diagnostic tests we should get on our AMD patients. You, you really presented a very different patient with large bilateral PEDs. Would you work these patients up the same way, Moo, with diagnostic imaging, or would you do something different for each patient? You know, in general, my my approach is, is fairly minimalistic when it comes to neovascular AMD. I mean, certainly there are masquerators. You can have pattern dystrophies with CNV. You can have some inflammatory conditions that can mimic um, uh, AMD. Uh, but in general, if a patient fits the right demographic and their OCT findings are in line with what we see on a daily basis, um, I typically view treatment as not only therapeutic, but, you know, initially diagnostic. And for the most part, um, I defer fluorescenes in my AMD patients. I find them much more useful in my diabetics, uh, but in AMD, I tend to uh, use it much less frequently, unless it's a, a, a subtle or nuanced case. Um, Dr. Rachiskaya brought up a very interesting and I think important uh, aspect of the exam up in that um, this patient had extrafoveal GA. And I think that brings up a whole matter of discussion that sometimes gets neglected in the clinic when patients deal with their prognosis in the longer term. As patients progress, you know, we still debate about whether or not monthly intravitreal injections, you know, standard of care might lead to more atrophy, or if this is just a natural progression of the patient's advanced dry macular. Moo, you bring up a really good point in that GA aspect. Because how many times have we had a patient that's just really done everything we've asked them as far as getting treated, and yet they continue to lose vision, particularly in years two, three, four, and going forward, uh, because of progression of atrophy. And, and they come back and they say, look, I'm getting worse. Why can't I see better? I've, I've done everything you've asked me to do. And it's really at that time that I talk about GA, but I should probably start talking to, to, to patients about that earlier, showing them their OCTs and, and their red-free images, giving them some visual and, and reasonable explanation about how atrophy progresses. Yeah, that's a really, really important aspect of the discussion, I think. And 
really sets the stage for what the patient's prognosis is and realistic expectations are. Um, you know, when I uh, counsel my patients, I try not to be all doom and gloom, but the data is not great for patients with extrafoveal GA. There's a great uh, study that came out, I think just past year in JAMA, looking at patients with extrafoveal GA and their progression to central foveal involvement is about 75% within four years. Uh, that's, a, that's a very humbling uh, statistic for our patients. And I try not to be too specific with it, but I do guard them in their prognosis uh, that, that we do everything we can to slow the, the disease down, but we can't stop the disease in its tracks. I think to follow up on the question you brought up, John, in terms of imaging, uh, I don't think you necessarily need to get out of fluorescence or something to show the patient the GA, the ANFAS image, or even you know your B scan. You can kind of highlight that because luckily our field is so visual and our patients are so interested in their imaging modalities and they know their OCTs. So you, um, to Moose's point, you kind of want to bring it up. I wouldn't necessarily dwell on it because at least at this point, there's nothing we can do and uh, we need to treat the nevascular AMD component. Um, but you don't need extensive imaging to educate the patients on, uh, on what findings they have. Yeah, you know, I, I find that sometimes later on in the disease course, when we have that exact same situation where, you know, they're either not improving their vision or they're having progressive vision loss, that I'll go back on the OCT and I'll use the advanced RPE analysis. And I'll actually go back and, and look and compare their image from today to their initial image. And I'll show them that comparison. And a lot of times it's, it's quite shocking as you'll see a lot of RPE loss and atrophy show up on the scan from today. And that really helps them kind of contextualize why they've had progressive vision loss despite the fact that we've done everything that we can for their wet AMD. Um, and unfortunately, at this point, I have to kind of tell them, look, there's nothing we can really do about this. Um, just really so many interesting aspects about both of your cases. So we're going to take a little break. Um, I want to come back and we're going to talk to Moo and Alexandra and find out how they actually treated their patients and the rationale behind that right after this break. Welcome back to the new Retina Radio miniseries, Matching Patients to Therapy. I'm John Kitchens, and I'm here with Dr. Lou Autumn and Dr. Alexander Rachiskaya. Dr. Autumn, before the break, you talked to us a little bit about a 65-year-old patient who traveled a great distance, I think two or three hours, as you mentioned it, with bilateral PEDs and extensive leakage off those PEDs. How did you treat this patient? Well, you know, we, we start out with the discussion of, of, you know, the history of AMD. Injections sound scary, but blindness in general sounds scarier. Uh, you know, Dr. Rasheskaya brought up a really good point earlier in our discussion about what, what patients should expect in terms of the timeline for the treatment. Is this something that's going to happen forever? And, you know, upon hearing the, the news that standard of care is intravitreal injections, the patient was quite anxious and worried about, you know, her future. And, and what this meant for her living situation, if she'd be able to handle the treatment burden uh, living so far away with no retina specialist really close by to her. And so, you know, at that time, uh, our, our, our practice had been recruiting for the latter trial, the port delivery system study in its phase two, uh, looking at three escalating doses uh, of ranibizumab in the PDS uh, device. And in discussing with her the potential advantages of this modality of treatment in that 
it could lead to a sustained delivery of the same drug that we inject in her eye for standard of care treatment uh, that could potentially reduce her treatment burden in the future. She became really, really excited about that prospect. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate that um, our sponsors in clinical trials provide a lot of other incentives for patients um, when it comes to transportation, uh, stipends for their time, and of course, treatment uh, for their fellow eye. And so between all of the factors that we discussed and the prospect of a potentially reduced treatment burden in the future, the patient elected to enroll in the port delivery system study, and we got her into ladder. And just a reminder, everybody, about the ladder study. It was a phase two study, as Moo mentioned. So Moo, talk to us a little bit about how your patient responded to the ladder study. And then, and then just really a little bit around your mindset for a bilateral patient and how really port delivery uh, would ideally work for them now that it's approved? Oh, that's, that's great questions. Um, you know, our patient, uh, she uh, started out with treatment uh, that was monthly with ranibizumab in her right eye. Her left eye was uh, enrolled into the study and she had the PDS device implanted. Um, there were three arms to the study and there was a 10 milligram per milliliter arm for the ranibizumab refill, a 40 milligram per milliliter, and a 100 milligram per milliliter refill. Ultimately, uh, Sysmevo, uh, the FDA-approved version of the port delivery system device and ranibizumab, uh, was approved at the 100 milligram per milliliter dose. And so our patient did okay. She did fairly well with the monthly injections in her right eye, but in her left eye, she had a suboptimal response. And um, at some point in the trial, there was an amendment made to allow for uh, rescue treatments with intravitreal ranibizumab, as well as a conversion of the patient from whatever lower dose they were presumed to be on, because this, this trial was masked, to the highest dose, the 100 milligrams per milliliter. And so I think about eight months into the trial, she was converted. And what we saw was absolutely incredible. She had persistent edema, subretinal fluid, and large broad PEDs. And they it was just absolutely amazing to see after her first high dose ranibizumab refill, it melted away uh, in her left eye. And her vision improved markedly, which we were also surprised about. Usually if there's a delay in care or inadequate response to treatment, you'll see some degradation in the visual prognosis over time. But her vision improved about four lines and has maintained that since then. So it's pretty incredible. Wow, that's really fantastic, Boom. So when you say a suboptimal response, and, and granted, keep in mind, this patient was on the lower dose uh, than the approved dose, which is tenfold higher. What do you consider that suboptimal response? Um, did she dry up at the beginning and then just start to leak before the six-month period, or did she really never dry up completely to begin with? She, she really had an incomplete response and never dried up completely. There were there was still persistent subretinal fluid and edema. You know, sometimes you'll see those PEDs, those large neovascular PEDs persist, but the overlying subretinal fluid and macular edema can improve. And in her case, really, we, we didn't see much movement at all. Um, her fellow eye that was treated with a monthly ranibizumab was doing fairly well, but didn't have uh, initially a great response. Although after six months, the exudation, exudative component of her PEDs improved although the large PEDs remained. So, Moo, I'm interested to get your thoughts, and, and Alexander, yours as well. How does Susvimo fit in a patient with bilateral disease? 
No, because we've been thinking about this and trying to sort this out in some of uh, the phase two and phase three clinical study patients. You know, when, when exactly do we put the other implant in their fellow eye? Um, you know, we have three patients that have bilateral disease and they are really just dying to have this in their other eye. They're just so happy with it. So what do you think about that, Moon? You are, you are uh, hitting the, the nail on the head there. I mean, when a patient gets this device, at least in my experience, and it sounds like in yours, um, they really, really, really want it in their fellow eye. Uh, the, the burden of treatment, the associated discomfort, all the things that come with intravitreal injections really motivate patients to want to have that decreased burden in both eyes. I mean, that's the point. It's not just decreasing burden for one eye, it's decreasing burden for the patient kind of alluding back to what Dr. Rajaskaya was talking about. And so this is a tricky question. We don't know longer term who is at risk for those delayed complications like erosion, retraction of the conjunctiva, and subsequent endophthalmitis. And the timeline for that has not been quite well characterized in terms of who is uh, going to be really out of the high-risk window. I think in the sub-analyses of the phase three uh, trial for the port delivery system, the, um, the archway trial, uh, I think most complications that were related to this happened up until month 48 or so. And so beyond that, patients didn't really see, or we didn't really see delayed device-related complications. So I think it'd be reasonable to wait roughly a year after that first implantation to see how they do, make sure their conjunctiva is healthy and intact with the device and then consider implantation in the other eye. I think that's, that's, that would be my approach. I don't know that would be everybody's approach. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, think, I think Moo meant to say week 48 there. I agree with you, Moo. And, and you know, for us timing-wise, we have some of these patients now that are coming up on their refill, and we're going to really try to time it so that we implant in their fellow eye right around the time of refill. And really what we hope to achieve is that we're going to be able to see these patients eventually at least every six months um, and maybe real refill their eyes a week or two apart. Alexandra, how do you see port delivery working in a patient with bilateral disease? So I think, um, you know, the, the port delivery and, or SESBIMA, as we should call it now that it has FDA approval, is really a change in paradigm if you stop and think about it. We have a condition... Uh, neovascular MD that has been treated with intravenous injections for many years now. This is what most of us are comfortable with. And this is, you know, this is what we've been doing and doing very frequently in some of these patients. You know, some of these patients needed injections every month. I think um, patient selection is key to success of the SWIMO. You really want to make sure that that's a correct patient who can have surgery, that they're um, medically stable to undergo surgery, that they're not on multiple anticoagulants that can't be paused, uh, that they have, um, you know, in general, able to lay flat and things like that that we think about when we plan for surgery. And also, uh, I would make sure that I examine the eye very carefully, you don't want any patient who had previous conjunctival surgery because as Mu has mentioned, there is some complications that were seen. And the surgery itself is, um, it's not a very complex surgery. I think, you know, both of you guys sounds like you have done it, um, but it's, 
it's different. You know, you have to think about different aspects of the surgery than you usually think of as a retina surgeon. You know, it's not a parse blind attraction, it's not a buckle. It's kind of almost a marriage of retina and glaucoma surgery. Uh, so I, I, um, I agree with you in terms of the comments that were made that the patients who have bilateral disease or in this clinical trials, and that's, that's the data, the patient information we have now, um, my patient as well wanted in the other eye. The interesting thing that I caught uh, with one of my patients who had to get injected in one eye and refilled in the other eye, they don't think of refill as an injection. They, you know, they, they were talking about uh, the procedure to their spouse and they said, oh, I don't need an injection today. And I'm like, wait, wait, we're doing the refill, which in my head is still <laughs> an injection. And they're like, I'm not getting an injection today. I'm just getting a refill. So it's, it's just interesting the way the patients perceive the experience as well. It's a really good point you make. You know, this device allows us to uh, apply or, or penetrate with the needle uh, through a septum, not the sclera. And, and accordingly, the patient doesn't have the same perception uh, when they receive the treatment. Uh, it's a bit more, a bit of a longer procedure, but the associated spoil penetration that's there with a typical intravitreal injection, um, they don't really feel that, that same sensation. Um, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting time in, in retina because you're, you're so right. This is a huge paradigm shift. And I'd be curious to hear yours and, and John's thoughts uh, on, on how to proceed in terms of a practice. You know, in our practice, myself and one of my partners, uh, Peter Hovland, we were the PIs on the port delivery trials and we have a fair amount of experience implanting these devices. And we have some excited uh, uh, and interested colleagues in our group that wanna implant these as well. And they're in the process of undergoing the uh, a surgical training procedures to do it. But there's a lot to learn about preoperative uh, evaluations and, and intraoperative considerations when it comes to this surgery, because it's different than what we do every day. I'd be curious to hear yours, Alexandra's and Joe John's thoughts on that. Yeah, Mu, you've got a really great point there as well. It's, it's just a different surgery, uh, less of kind of an art form and more precise and engineering-like. Um, and I would tell you that I think for at least a larger practice, uh, retina-only practice with multiple surgeons, it may be best to really just have you know, one or two or three people that are kind of very skilled at doing this, very proficient at doing this. It's not something, in my opinion, that you want everybody doing just a handful of. You really want some people that are doing it consistently uh, for efficiency's sake and for outcome's sake. Um, you know, there's certainly things with the techniques that and experience that can reduce the chances of the complications that you mentioned earlier. So I'm interested, Alexandra, what do you think? Is this a surgeon that everybody in the practice should be doing or just really specific surgeons should be focused on? I think it's going to be interesting to see how the implementation of Saslima is going to happen nationwide. And to your point, John, how each practice is going to implement it. Is it going to be just a couple of folks? Is it going to be everybody? But training is so important. Um, Nobody should just jump into it and, and start implanting Sasima. And I know that the uh, company uh, supporting the device is, is very proactive in terms of training the surgeons. Um, because as you mentioned, it's a, 
it's it's very algorithmical surgery you know each steps builds on the on the previous step and to have a su successful surgery and remember it's not just a surgery then we have refills as well um there's there's um a little bit of technique to it that is not hard to learn but needs to be um practiced to to be perfected as as much as possible yeah i agree completely alexander now I don't want to leave out your case. You had a patient who had unilateral wet AMD with some geographic atrophy, modest decrease in vision, but really could not be extended out beyond four weeks. How did you take care of your patient? So I think the point of my patient is to highlight that we still have great intravitreal injections and they work well. Uh, this patient was started on bevacizumab and did really well in terms of visual and anatomic outcomes, but we struggled extending this patient. And most of us have been practiced in this treat and extend kind of protocol with modifications depending on each particular uh, physician. And so this patient was switched to Libercept and actually did quite, quite well. So this patient, we were able to extend to 10 weeks, uh, which significantly decreases the treatment burden in terms of coming to clinic, getting the injections, relying on others, you know, all the things that we hear from, from our patients. And I think there is other um, medications and treatments in the pipeline that might provide us even with longer control with intravitreal injections. And uh, to... To echo what Moose said, this is a very exciting time uh, in, um, in neovascular AMD um, uh, practice because we are having more and more options. So that conversation, to go back to my point from earlier, that conversation where the, the patient says, wait, I'm going to get monthly injections for the rest of my life to preserve the, the most vision I can. That conversation might change as we discuss additional options with the patient. So I'm very excited to, to have uh, those different modalities that we can offer to patients based on their presentation. So Moo, question for you. What are some tips and techniques, things you do when you have that patient that responds, but you can't get them out any longer than every four or five weeks? I would do what Alexander described, uh, and that is switch to a flibercept. In, in general, my experience is that, and I think some data bears this out, that, that flibercept has better potency and durability uh, than both bevacizumab and renabizumab, intravitreal injections at their current dosing. Um, and so uh, when doing that, we can be largely successful in extending patients out. Um, that's not true for every patient. I have a number of patients that have tried all three drugs and have had the same response. And then you have to get a little creative. Um, in some cases uh, where you have an extra foveal CNB, I'll do an ICGFA and we'll do uh, half-fluence PDT on those patients. Um, I don't like to do full-fluence in general because I, I fear causing more atrophy, kind of relating back to our prior discussion. Um, and then I have some other patients in which I have to um, uh, perhaps do a sample injections. I have one lady who I treat every three weeks and every other treatment is a sample to try to keep her dry. She was actively losing vision and so we just needed to do something. We talked about another option on the market, Bayoview, and after our discussion, she didn't feel like she wanted to take uh, any additional risk in terms of safety. Um, and I've, I've, after some time and some experience with a little bit of inflammation in my patients that have trialed Bayoview, I've shied away from using it in general, although I do present it as another option uh, because it's still there. Yes, I agree completely, Moo. I, I think 
it's always great to try different things. We, we don't presently use Bayview because of that risk of inflammation. We, we do, or we did offer it on occasion to patients, uh, but really when we explained the risk uh, to those patients, um, they really tended to shy away from it. Listen, I think you guys have both presented some really great cases, given some really good rationale behind your therapy choices, we're going to wrap it up for this mini-series, Matching Patients to Therapy and Wet AMD. We had two earlier episodes released already, and you should go back in your new Retina Radio feed to listen to them. On behalf of Dr. Moo Autumn and Dr. Alexander Rajaskaya, I'm John Kitchens. Thanks for listening.